0: This is plucked stories plucked straight from the history of folk and acoustic music. Hang down your head, Tom, Dooley. Hang down your head and cry. Hang Here's how much we love blood. Dooley. When the Kingston Trio released their first album, the song you're hearing wasn't even a single. It was just another song on the album. Catchy to be sure, but probably too violent to be a hit. That didn't stop Salt Lake City DJ Paul Colburn from playing it though. Colburn knew intuitively his listeners would go crazy for the morbidly obsessed earworm, and he was right. They jammed the studio lines with requests to hear it over and over again. And when they found out they couldn't buy it as a single, they just went out and bought the album. Within weeks, had swept the nation, and it seemed like we the record-buying public might never get enough of this deceptively wholesome-sounding song about a man who killed his own lover and now awaits his execution by hanging. When it finally was released as a single, despite its decidedly late entry into the market, Tom Dooley quickly rose to the number one position on the Billboard Hot 100, the first folk-styled song ever to do so, and by many accounts, spawned a modern folk movement that still thrives to this day, more than 60 years later. Poor boy, you're bound to die. That's how much we love blood. The song is based on the real life story of a young Civil War veteran named Tom Dooley spelled D-U-L-A but pronounced Dule in the vernacular of Appalachian English. The real-life Dule returned home after a stint in the Confederate Army and quickly got caught up in the case of a murder that he may or may not have committed. The facts of the case have been twisted and obscured by a century and a half of wild speculations, pointed folk songs, and even a Hollywood movie that grossly misrepresented Dooley as a romantic cowboy with a heart of gold. Laura, listen to me. I risk my life to come here and get you. And just for one reason, because I love you. But of course, the truth is never quite as simple as any of those things make it out to be. I'm Bobby Waller, And this is the real-life story of Tom Dooley. Tom Dooley was a ladies' man. A lifetime in Wilkes County, North Carolina, hadn't given him much money to bandy about, so he learned early on that if he aimed to get what he wanted out of life, it was going to take charm. And that's something Tom Dooley had in abundance. Seemed to come by it naturally. Word is he figured out how to use it on the ladies earlier than most fellows are even beginning to think about it. He got caught in the act with a girl in Elkville named Annie Foster when she was only 14 and get this, he was only 12. Her mama, Lottie, walked in and caught them both right there in the girl's bed. That's the kind of nerve Tom had. But to be fair, I guess you'd have to say it's the kind of nerve Annie had too. And so Mama Lottie must have been relieved when her wild daughter Annie married James Melton just two years later. Age 16 was high time for an Elkville girl to be getting married, and James was as good a choice for a husband as Annie. He was five years older than Annie, not exactly well off, but running a farm and decidedly more stable than it looked like that Dooley kid would ever be. More the kind of guy mothers tend to want for their daughters. But of course, you can want all you like. If somebody's got the fire in them, it's going to take more than a wedding band to put it out. Word is, when Tom came back from the war, he and Annie rekindled that fire. And that's when things started going wrong. Let's start with the facts of the case. And before we go any further, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that there aren't many things in this case you can call a bona fide fact. There's lots of conjecture, plenty of rumor and speculation, but fairly little you can point to and say, yep, that definitely happened. Here's one, though. In the last week of May, 1866, Annie's cousin Laura went missing. Authorities later found her body stabbed in the heart and folded up into a shallow grave. Nobody in Wilkes County could remember anything quite so cold-blooded in their lifetime. The news spread like wildfire, kicking the local gossip mills into overdrive. That poor girl bled to death with a heart and crumpled up like an old duffel bag in a ditch. Who could do such a thing? And why? And are we going to sit back and let such violence go unpunished? Mystery was a hard thing for the people of Wilkes County to take, and so without any decisive evidence about who killed Laura Foster or why they did it, the people of Wilkes County created one inviolable certainty for themselves. Somebody was gonna have to pay for this. (laughs) Tom quickly emerged as the primary suspect in a lot of people's minds, and if what they say is true, he only had himself to blame. Charmers are talkers, after all, and apparently Tom had been talking up a storm about how much he wanted to do in Laura Foster. He was also shockingly blunt about why he wanted to kill her. Laura, he seems to have told everybody, is the one who gave him syphilis. And here's where the story gets really sorted. A local doctor by the name of George Carter later testified during the murder trial that he had treated both Tom and Annie for syphilis. That's right, I said Annie, the one Tom had been romancing since she was 14 and he was only 12. Not Laura, the dead girl who was Annie's cousin. So how did Laura end up getting involved in this long-term affair between Tom and Annie? No one knows for certain, but the story is that Tom had been philandering with both women. He picked up the disease from Laura, or at least that's what he seems to have believed, and passed it on to Annie. And once you know what syphilis actually does to a person, you can easily see why Tom's mind might very well have turned to murder. The POC, as they called it, usually starts with a single laceration wherever the infection entered the body, most likely the genitals. From there, it can lead to rashes on the palms of your hands, or the bottoms of your feet, or in your mouth, or open sores all over your entire body, or giant lumps that disfigure your face until you barely look human anymore. In the end, it might attack your heart, your brain, or your central nervous system, contorting your every movement and maybe driving you stock-raving mad before, at long last, it kills you. And the treatment for it wasn't much better. Dr. Carter prescribed both Annie and Tom a concoction called Blue Mass that was one-third mercury. It was typically reserved only for serious diseases, like syphilis, because mercury itself can cause kidney dysfunction, loss of hair and teeth, poor coordination, anxiety, memory loss, and bouts of uncontrollable crying and laughter. In the end, blue mass, like the disease it was intended to treat, can drive you certifiably insane before it slowly and painfully kills you. Either way, Tom was screwed. Here was this working-class playboy who had nothing in the world but good looks, southern charm, and a flair for the fiddle, all of which he was possibly going to lose. Tom was pissed, and he wanted everybody to know. In short, the sheriff's office didn't have to look particularly hard to find a motive for Tom to kill Laura. If the rumors about Tom's loose lips are true, he practically handed it to him on a silver platter about the only thing Tom had going for him is that he had apparently been fairly even-handed in the application of his charm. It wasn't just for the ladies, it was for everybody. He was always laughing, always having a good time, and because of that, a number of folks in Wilkes County found him simply too affable to be a killer. They say the murderer was one of Tom's relatives or one of Laura's relatives, but more often than not, they say it was Annie. Word is, Annie and Laura hadn't been getting along too well. The syphilis was getting harder and harder for Annie to hide from her husband, and with her marriage, her home, and her health all on the brink of destruction, Annie's obsessive mind fixated on Laura as the supposed source of the disease and wouldn't rest until that bitch cousin of hers was six feet under. In another version of the story, Annie was jealous because after having secretly devoted 10 years of her sexual prime to Tom, he went and proposed to Laura. Cousin Laura, the town slut. Did he really think she could be faithful to him for the rest of her life? And even if she could, what makes her think she deserves him? I'm the one who taught Tom how to be a man, not her. I had him first, and I'll die a thousand deaths in hell before I let her be his last. Theories about Annie's guilt were corroborated in trial by the testimony of yet another young foster woman, this one named Pauline. Folks weren't entirely clear how Pauline was related to Annie and Laura, only that she had recently come to Elkville from someplace else supposedly to visit her grandpa foster. Pauline claimed under oath that during one of the few days when Laura's corpse was still in its initial grave, Annie led her, Pauline, to that hastily dug hole just to make sure the body was still in it. It was a questionable claim at best. Why would Annie reveal such a heinous crime to a relative she barely even knew? but it became even more questionable when Dr. Carter testified that he had treated Pauline for syphilis before he had treated Tom and Annie for the dreaded disease. It appears that Pauline's sudden appearance in Elkville was less of a visit to dear old Grandpa Foster and more of a retreat for the treatment of the pock. Which, if we connect the dots, brings up the big question of whether Tom had plied his charm on Pauline as well as on Annie and Laura. The infamous eternal triangle of Elkville, North Carolina may very well have been an eternal quadrangle, which then raises the question of whether Laura Foster died for a medical crime she never even committed. It looks like Pauline may have been the bearer of syphilis to Wilkes County and with the rumors that Pauline had been intimate with several men in and around Elkville, there's no telling how many people may have been involved in this backwoods drama. All we can say for certain is that after a series of initial arrests, the prosecution focused solely on Tom and Annie. They were the only two people to be tried for the crime and Annie was acquitted. As for Tom, If you've heard any of the popular folk songs that circulated in the wake of his trial, you probably already know he wasn't so lucky. At first, his chances looked good. The case was now drawing national publicity and former North Carolina Governor Zebulon Vance stepped up to be Tom's pro bono attorney. Vance knew a highly visible win for a disadvantaged veteran would be good for his own political career, and so he jumped in full force. He successfully petitioned to relocate the trial from Wilkesboro to Statesville on the grounds that Wilkes County's out-of-control rumor mill precluded a fair trial for his client. And when the first trial found Tom guilty, Vance even finagled a retrial. But no matter what he did, it seemed like Dooley's fate was inevitable. The retrial also found Tom guilty, and he was sentenced to hang for the murder of Laura Foster. And that brings us up to the setting of the popular Kingston Trio song, The Eve of Tom's Execution, a jail cell in Statesville, North Carolina, where Tom waits to be hanged. By now, the entire country has heard about the trial and about the tangled webs those sexually depraved hillbillies in North Carolina weaved themselves into. So hang down your head, Tom, because despite what you may have heard about the way justice works in this newly reunited country, sometimes circumstantial evidence really is enough to make a man swing. Hang down your head, Tom, because this is not an age that tolerates uncertainty. And if we can't take comfort in the investigation of a crime, if the who and the why are uncertain, we can at least take comfort in the certainty of the punishment. Hang down your head, Tom, because there's an entire nation out there eager to see those poor stupid Appalachians pay for their ignorance and blood. Hang down your head, Tom, because whether you did it or not, somebody has to pay for this crime. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley, because the moment that girl disappeared, poor boy, you were bound to die. Thanks for listening to Plucked. Stories plucked straight from the history of folk and acoustic music. Most of the music on this show is used by permission of extremely generous friends, including Gordon Groft, Sinjin Fraser of OneEyedRiley.com, John Emery of JohnEmeryMusic.com, James Wilson of Facebook.com slash SteppingStoneTheBand, and Ken Burnett of MandolinAvenue.com. Our theme music is She's Easy to Dream About by John Emery. That's capital J-O-N, capital E-M-E-R-Y, all one word. Copyright free tunes from freepd.com include Horrific by Kevin MacLeod, Footsteps in the Attic by Arthur Fordsworthy, Mascot's Theme by Komiko, Jethro on the Run by an anonymous donor, and Creepy Hollow and Blood Eagle by Alexander Nakarada. The feature song for this episode was Tom Dooley by the Kingston Trio, released in 1958 by Capitol Records. Movie clip from The Legend of Tom Dooley, released in 1959 by Columbia Pictures. For more information about all of these artists, please see the show notes for this episode at plucked.com. And for goodness sake, visit these artists' websites, go to their shows, give them your money, they deserve it. I'm Bobby Waller. Thanks for listening to Pluck.